From the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and for each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can invite someone on the show who does some incredible work in public philosophy and psychology to help us think about biases in the workplace. With us today is Itamar Schatz, a PhD candidate at Cambridge University and author of two great sites, Effectiveology and Solving Procrastination. Thanks so much for joining us, Itamar. Happy to be here. Before we get to the case, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a PhD candidate at Cambridge, where I study patterns of linguistic acquisition. And some of the things that I do outside of it are trying to make uh, scientific and philosophical findings more accessible to people, both so they can understand them and so they can use them in practice in their life. And this involves things like cognitive biases and logical fallacies. And the idea is to basically write about these concepts in a way that people can actually understand because a lot of the scientific literature on the topic is very difficult, both to understand and to reach in practice. So I'm trying to gather all the data from there, basically make it so that people can use these tools to improve their lives. And so what I'd like to do is I just want to read through a case and then you and I are just going to talk about the case, talk about what's going on in it. And I I think some of the things you do work on, I think they're going to pop out right away. So Itamar, here's the case we have. I'm imagining someone, Ralph, and he's just really kind of fed up with something that the interns have been griping about. And he he starts off, he's in the break room, he says, what's wrong with the kids these days? I, I hear them day in and day out complain, complain, complain about the housing market. And I really don't get it. I never had any problems with this when I started here. I It, it was just fine for me. And, and the other thing I don't get is, why are they so angry about it? I mean, it's one thing to complain, but the moral outrage I see here is just ridiculous. Even if I were having issues with housing, I wouldn't get that angry. Why are they so worked up about this? And you know what I've come to think? I, I think it's just in their nature to complain. These, these Gen Z kids just don't have any real sense of values. And then a, a co-worker, Samuel, responds and says, hey, Ralph, I think you should slow down a bit. I I think you might be exhibiting some some potential uh, biases here. And I think it'd be good for you to slow down and just think more about it. And you know what? Here's this website, Effectiveology. It has a ton of interesting uh, things to say about these biases, these lesser known biases. I, I think you should check it out. And that, that, that was sort of at the end of the day. And then the next day, Ralph comes in and says, Sam, you know, I read that info. Uh, super interesting stuff. But I'm actually, after reading the info, more confident that I'm right about what's wrong with these Gen Z kids. Sam says, I think you just exhibited another one of those biases. Ralph says, no, I didn't. End of story. So Itamar, does that seem like an interesting case to to unpack? Yeah, I think there's a lot. All right. Uh, great. A lot of relevant things here. All right, great. Well, then uh, let's get to work. Itamar, where, where should we start? I think we start in the beginning um, when he was talking about how Ralph was talking about how he doesn't understand why the interns are upset because he never had any issues. 
And it's a great example of something called the egocentric bias, which is a very top level bias and that it corresponds with a lot of other biases where people focus too much on their own perspective and on their own point of view when they try to see things from other people's perspective. So in this case, Ralph is so, so used to seeing it when he's trying to imagine what the entries are going through, he's just looking at through his own perspective. You know, in his eyes, he didn't have any issues. It doesn't matter that it may have been a very long time ago. It doesn't matter that things may have changed since then or that the interns may be under a different situation. He's looking at it through his own eyes and through the situation he was in. Great. And can you give us some other examples, uh, common examples where what you call egocentric bias might be in play? Yeah. Um, I think another interesting example in the workplace context is someone being a part of a team project and thinking, only seeing their own contribution. So when he's trying to look at the project as a whole, he's only looking at his own contributions because even when he's trying to think about what other people did, he keeps seeing it through his own eyes. So he ends up underestimating contributions of other people and overestimating the contributions of himself. This is really interesting. And now in the spirit of effectiveology, you provide some practical tips, like things that people can do, uh, that someone like Ralph could do or be more intentional about to help mitigate the effect of something like the egocentric bias. Could, could you share a little bit of what that, what that is? Yeah, so there are a lot of debiasing techniques that you can use. Um, first of all, before I even say which ones and discuss it, it's important to say that nothing is guaranteed. So even if you do use these kind of techniques, it's not guaranteed to solve the issue, but there are a lot of things that you can do that do help reduce it in some cases. So for example, uh, one simple step is to develop awareness of the bias. So just understanding what this is, why it happens, why we experience it, um, when we can experience it can help you identify it and then reduce it. Another thing that you can do is try to consider the alternative viewpoints. So try to actually see things from the other person's perspective, try to put yourself in their shoes, try to imagine what their actual perspective is like. Something that's useful in a lot of situations is to trust, try and slow down your reasoning and make it explicit. So you could ask yourself, for example, what are my beliefs? What's influencing my perspective? Okay, how could their perspective be different than mine? Could I be making any mistakes? Is it possible that um, their perspective is more correct than I am? Is it possible that there is something that I'm missing here? So these are all sorts of things that you can do that can help, not just with the egocentric bias, but with a lot of other biases too. Well, speaking of the other biases, the, the next thing that Ralph says in this case is, the other thing I don't get is why, why are they so angry? It's one thing to complain, but the moral outrage I see in them is ridiculous. Even if I were having these issues, I wouldn't get that angry. Why are they so worked up? Do you have thoughts about what's going on there? Yeah, so this ties into the egocentric bias, and it's a bit closer to something called the empathy gap, where people uh, underestimate differences in emotional states. So for example, someone who is currently calm will usually find it very difficult to understand the perspective of someone who is angry or to understand how this anger or how this feeling could be influencing their perspective and their actions. And this is very similar in a way to the egocentric bias. Essentially, you're trying to understand other people's perspective. You're anchoring it to your own and more specifically to your current perspective, because we can also experience the empathy gap towards ourselves. So when we're very calm, it's hard for us to imagine what we would be like um, if we were angry or if we were afraid, for example. I'm trying to think of more examples. So this is a case where he's calm, they're angry, and be, 
because he's calm about the situation, he has a hard time understanding why they would be angry, that that difference in emotional state is playing a role. So what we were discussing now is something called a cold to pot empathy gap, because it's someone in a cold state, so a very emotionally neutral state, struggling to understand someone, someone in a hot state. But you can also have it the other way around. So if you're very angry about something and someone else isn't, it's hard for you to understand how could they be acting so calm when it's such a huge issue, for example. So this is a bias that can be both interpersonal, so you can experience it when it comes to understanding other people, and you can also experience it for yourself. So I think probably the most uh, common example of an empathy gap is when people are on a diet, for example, and they say, yeah, I won't eat anything that will break my diet today. And they're saying this when they're in a cold state, when they're full and when they're at home. And then when they're outside and let's say they're really hungry and they see something really delicious, they end up eating it regardless. And the empathy gap in this case is when they're initially in the cold state, they're failing to understand how they will act later and how things like hunger and temptation will influence their behavior. Are there further recommendations for trying to mitigate the effects of empathy gap? One key technique that you can use is looking at previous experiences. So let's say you're really calm and someone else is really angry and you don't understand why they're acting the way that they're acting. You can ask yourself, okay, when was the last time that I was angry? How did I act then? And you can also do the opposite, for example, or with the example of the diet, you could say, okay, it's true that I think that I won't break my diet today, but I said the exact same thing yesterday and the exact same thing the day before, and each time I failed. So clearly these things like hunger are influencing me more strongly uh, than I'm predicting right now. Now, when uh, Ralph is talking, he, he turns from not understanding why they're upset and not understanding why they're so angry. And so he surmises that it's just in their nature to complain. Uh, that must be what's going on. These Gen Z kids just don't have any real values. What's going on with Ralph there? So that's another cognitive bias um, that's called the fundamental attribution error. And it's a very big name, but essentially what it says is that people sometimes overestimate the influence of personal factors and underestimate the influence of situational factors. So in this case, what Ralph is saying is he's ignoring the fact that maybe uh, the infants are angry or are in problems because of situational factors, and maybe there's pressure on them, and he's ignoring all these things. And he's assuming that their behavior is attributed primarily to their personality. So if they're complaining, it must be their personality and not the fact that maybe, you know, the housing market has changed okay. or that there is more pressure on them or that there's, there are issues commuting and things like that. Okay. So there were, there were two technical terms in there. There was the situational factors and then there's sort of personal factors. Yeah. And let me just see if I'm getting this right. Personal factors would be like, like as you say, personality traits or dispositions, something internal to the person, like their care, their moral character their values. And, and we start saying things like, they only do that because they're greedy or selfish, or and you just start listing off those kinds of traits. And then situational factors, is it fair to say that situational factors might also be described as sort of mitigating external circumstances? They find themselves in a situation where there is something really weird external to them and, it's, and that is the reason that they're behaving the way they are, because of something outside of themselves that's really impacting them. Is that, is that a fair yeah, assessment? It's external things. I, it, 
in this case, I would call it mitigating factors, I would say, but it doesn't necessarily have to be mitigating factors. You could also have a situation where someone is acting in a way that's positive only because of situational factors rather than personal factors. So, for example, when we're talking about someone doing something positive just because of situational factors, I think the example that comes to mind immediately, at least for me, is um, public relations. So when companies try to act a certain positive way just because they want to garner positive reaction from the public. And it's a bit of a weird example because I'm sort of anthropomorphizing the companies here, but the point still stands because at the end of the day, you could say that the fundamental attribution error would be assuming that the company is acting this way because that's what they actually believe and ignoring the fact that maybe they're doing it um, because there is external pressure on them to act a certain way from regulators or from the public or from other sources. Well, okay. So in the case of fundamental attribution error, what do we all, and especially people like Ralph, need to be thinking about to avoid falling into this kind of error? Let's say someone is being really mean. You said good morning, and they just said hi and walked away. And your instinct in this case might be to say, okay, they're a rude person, and that would be the fundamental attribution error. So you would be immediately assuming that the reason they acted the way that they acted is because of their personality. But in this case, you can say, all right, let's slow it down. I'm assuming that they're rude, but the only evidence that I have for this is that this one time answered very abruptly. But could there be another explanation? Maybe they had a bad morning. Maybe they got stuck in commute. Um, Maybe their kid was sick, so they were up with them all night. And you could try to think through the situation and try to come up with an alternative explanation. And another thing that could even help in this case is to say, okay, was I ever rude in this situation to someone? What What was my explanation? Have I ever been rude to someone in the morning, maybe because I just got yelled at by someone else because I got in an argument with my partner? This ties in sort of to also humanizing the other person and realizing that they, just like you, have complex lives and complex motivation and experience complex interactions. So you should try to see them as their own individual rather than someone very single dimension. So we've talked about egocentric bias. We've talked about the empathy gap. We've talked about the fundamental attribution error. And Sam suspects something's up. And Sam has just recently encountered effectiviology. And he he tells Ralph, hey, look, you might be exhibiting some of these biases. You know, Sam thinks Ralph's a reasonable person. He's going to go away, read this, come back, be convinced, and then, you know, want to start thinking about how he forms judgments. And then Ralph comes back and says, I've read that info, super interesting stuff, but I'm actually more confident then I'm right about this. I, that's not I, that's not going on with me. To which Sam replies, I think you're exhibiting another one of the biases. And Ralph says, no, I'm not. So I think Ralph could be exhibiting something that we call the backfire effect, where being confronted with contradictory evidence um, only causes him to strengthen his initial belief. Um, I think there's also in this case, maybe a bit of the bias blind spot where people don't notice biases that they're exhibiting. Um, So it could be a combination of the things here. And this is a really interesting thing because when you think about how argumentation works, how discussions work, you know, the perfect model is you present information, they present information, everyone analyzes together, and then you come to a conclusion. (laughs) I think that we see that in practice, that's just not the case. People often, even when faced with overwhelming evidence that they're wrong, they will not change their opinion. And they can even, in some cases, like in this one, 
support their original opinion even more strongly, even though they are just presented with so much evidence that they're wrong. Uh, yeah, I must confess, when I first learned about this bias, and it was a few years ago, it was a bit of a gut punch in the sense that I was like, my whole worldview just sort of presupposed that in a democracy, what we do is what you just described, which is we bring our views to the table, we share them. We call it the marketplace of ideas, right? You put all you put all your ideas out into the marketplace of ideas. Everybody presents their evidence for the views that they favor. And then as rational individuals, we all come together and, and we decide what the, what the best course of action is. And here you're telling me, here this bias is telling me that what might happen when people go to participate in this marketplace of ideas is they get more confident in their beliefs. That's basically what's going on with this kind of bias. Yeah, sometimes. I sometimes, would say, that's right. Not, not all always, the time, of course. Yeah. Sometimes. And yeah, it essentially shows that people aren't rational, which is important. So this one I'm real concerned about. This is a two-part question. What does someone like Sam do when dealing with someone whom he thinks is exhibiting this kind of, where this backfire is happening. You know, Ralph's just become more confident. What does Sam do? But then what do we all do ourselves to make sure that we're actually open and receptive to evidence against our own views? I will actually start with the second part, but what can we do for ourselves? I think it always helps going back to slow things down and make them explicit. So a lot of these issues come from our tendency to rely on our intuition. So for example, our intuition can cause us to reject contradictory evidence because it makes us feel bad, which, you know, when you think about it analytically, this is a terrible reason to reject evidence, but our intuition doesn't care because often our intuition cares about feeling good in the short term and avoiding cognitive dissonance. So we don't want to hold different contradictory beliefs. It makes us feel bad. So by slowing things down, we engage our analytical reasoning and it, obviously, it does not guarantee that we'll be able to overcome this bias, but it can help us give us a better fighting chance. And making things explicit can also really help with it. So it helps to say explicitly, what is your belief? And what it would take, for example, for you to change that belief? Because once you do this explicitly, then when you're encountered with evidence, it makes it much more likely that you'll have to actually deal with it and say, okay, I said that if I see, let's say, a peer-reviewed paper that contradicts my belief, then I'll change my mind. And well, I'm seeing one now, so I need to deal with it, as opposed to just having a vague belief in your head, and then it becomes much easier to wave away any evidence that you encounter. This sounds really similar to something I've encountered called uh, an implementation intention, which is yes. if, you, if you want to make sure you behave in a certain way, right? You say, if I'm ever in a situation where I see someone tell a racist joke, then I will do X. And if you actually write out what your action plan is, you're more likely to execute it. And this seems like a cognitive version of that, right? Absolutely. Implementation intentions, I think, are one of the uh, top psychological concepts that people should be using. Let's say, okay, so let's say our intuition can cause us, if we encounter a newspaper article that contradicts our beliefs, it causes us to just ignore it and hand wave it away, say, oh, uh, it's wrong, it's the liberals, or it's the conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. Just dismiss it. And you can say, okay, here's an implementation intention. If I encounter a news article that contradicts my beliefs, I'm going to read the entire thing and then write down what I agree with and what I disagree with. 
or ask myself, should I be changing uh, my opinion based on this? And by having an implementation intention here, you're making it more likely that you'll engage with this potentially contradictory material and less likely to just dismiss it immediately. It seems like this could work in other ways to just avoid misinformation generally, right? Like, you know, some there, there are certain red flags that should make you think that I shouldn't trust this source, right? So another interesting implementation intention that you can use that I think is really underrated is, and this is especially, I think, beneficial in the case of very dichotomous situations. So like politics, for example, um, in the US. So you could say, if I encounter something that confirms my belief, I'm going to look for an article from the opposite perspective. So let's say that you are a Democrat and you find something that says that Republicans are bad. Very general. You could say, okay, let's look at this perspective from a publication that is uh, Republican supported, for example. And this way you can see the event from different perspectives and you can ensure that you're exposing yourself to potentially contradictory evidence rather than allowing yourself to hide from it. Um, so we talked so far about how to avoid the backfire effect yourself. And helping someone else deal with it is very similar. Um, in some ways, again, you can try to get them to slow down their reasoning. And you can try to get them to make it explicit. But I think the most important thing to understand is that even though it may be very tempting in some cases, especially when there are a lot of emotions involved, the important thing is to make it about an attempt to discover something together to understand each other rather than a, uh, a confrontation where each side is trying to win by convincing the other. Because again, people hate losing, people hate feeling bad. So if you make it about convincing them, they will often feel that by being convinced, they lose. In which case they'll focus on not listening to you and not on trying to understand whether they're wrong, but rather than on how they can show that they're right, which is a very problematic mentality to be in. And which is one of the things that can cause the backfire effect because when they're focusing on, okay, I'm in defense mode now, I need to prove that I'm right. They're trying to essentially convince you and by doing this, you're sort of convincing themselves of their perspective. So instead of trying to convince them, what can help is trying to understand their perspective. And when you're doing this, you can highlight issues in their reasoning. So you can ask them uh, to explain what they believe, why they believe it. You can ask them what sort of evidence they've seen. You could ask them what would change their mind. And when you're doing this, you're also making them much more open and much more willing to engage in dialogue. Okay, so we've talked about four really interesting things that might be going on with Ralph. There was the egocentric bias, where he was anchoring his perspective and basically assuming everyone had his experience. There was the empathy gap, where he was having a hard time understanding why someone would be so angry, right? He was coming from like a cold place and looking at them in a really hot place. Then there was the fundamental attribution error where he attributed all of this stuff must be something about them as people. It must be about their character rather than situational factors that might explain why they're like this and why they feel this way. I'm interested in this idea about Sam thinking about, okay, I'm aware of biases. I'm interested in doing some of this work with myself. But it's real hard in a workplace when a lot of other people aren't on the same page, right? And I was wondering, do you have any thoughts about, A, how does one individual try to get other individuals to sort of see the reality of this? And is there some advantage? If, if everybody's on board with this idea, does it somehow become easier? Can, can a group get better at combating 
biases if more people in the group are on board with the idea that bias is a thing? Yeah, so that's a really great question. I don't know if there is research about it directly, but it absolutely makes sense that if more people within a group are aware of the biases or striving to avoid them, uh, then you would have, unless they're doing something very, very wrong about debiasing, then you would have fewer biases. And it can come from a lot of directions. It can come, for example, from having more accountability. So if, if everyone in the group is um, holding each other accountable for having opinions that are well-founded, then it can help eliminate a lot of the biases. So if you're in an environment where someone would say to Ralph, hey, you were saying this about the interns, but have you thought about the fact that maybe they're in a different situation than you? So, which is a ba very basic way of, ask, of using a debiasing technique. We don't think about it as a debiasing technique, but it is. And if you're in an environment where this kind of thinking is very common, um, then yes, you should absolutely be able to reduce uh, the biases that people experience. And the other side of this is that if you're in an environment where this doesn't exist, then it can allow biases to thrive. So if everyone agrees with uh, Ralph in this case and makes fun of the interns because it's more fun and more easier to do than to actually question the beliefs, that can allow uh, cognitive biases to fester and basically become more and more extreme. But I think that the individual does have power um, in a lot of cases to reduce other people's biases um, by creating an environment that's, that helps avoid them um, by holding people accountable, by thinking through things, by discussing things, by avoiding the arguments. And the more individuals engage in it, the better it is. And obviously, some individuals have more of an ability to influence this. So, for example, if this comes from someone higher up at the workplace who can institute policies to help in this regard. It might be, he might be able to have a greater impact than just one person, but every contribution should be able to help make the workplace a better place, even if the only person you manage to influence is yourself. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. We have been speaking with Itamar Schatz about his website, Effectiviology, and some of the work he does in public philosophy and psychology on cognitive biases. Uh, Itamar, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. And we hope you all are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me, Kate Barry, at katherineberry.depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. And if you've liked what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about what Inamar and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. 